0: Well, I want you to open your Bible with me to Joel. As I explained last week, we're going through a series here at Maricopa Springs called The Neglected Prophets. And for the next couple of months, we're going to tackle one prophet each week as we make our way through the minor prophets. This week, our text is Joel. And hopefully you read Joel over this last week. I want to encourage you next Sunday, I'm going to be teaching on Amos. And so read through Amos at some point this week. But before we get into the text, and I'm, I'm going to have to uh, just pick out a few passages, but before we get into that, what do we know about the author of Joel? I think it can be helpful for us to understand the author's context. And unfortunately, we don't know much about Joel. Uh, all that we do know about Joel is the very little that we can extrapolate from this book. We don't have his name in any other Uh, part of of scripture that tells us about the prophet Joel. So we know that this book was a prophecy given by God to a man named Joel. He was the son of Pethuel. Scholars uh, believe that he was writing at some point between 800 B.C. and 500 B.C., which is such a huge period of time as to be utterly unhelpful to us. If we want to know the historical context, 300 years doesn't help. We're pretty confident Joel lived in the area of Jerusalem. He was familiar with the temple. Uh, His writing kind of hints at that. And finally, we know that his name Joel means Yahweh is God, which is a fitting declaration of God's sovereign power as sort of a theme over this book. But that's about all we know, which brings up kind of an interesting side point here, which is this, do we need to know more about the author of a book of the Bible for it to have the kind of power that it should as God's word? Is it necessary for us to understand what this book is teaching? I mean, if you are into this sort of thing, Bible scholars spill all kinds of ink debating who the author of certain books of the Bible are, things like Hebrews, revelation, even Luke to some degree. Um, But does it matter much? No, I don't think so. As Christians, we believe God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and God is also the subject of Scripture. God is the hero of Scripture, and the point of all of Scripture is to teach us about God, and more specifically, to drive us to Jesus in particular. And that's enough, isn't it? It is. So while it may be fun to debate the author of an individual book, and it, it may actually help give us some of the historical context within which they were writing, those are good things. The truth is, we don't actually need to know much about Joel in order for us to receive and to understand and to be edified by everything that God has placed in these pages. If we add more details about Joel, that'd be cool. But it's not necessary in order for us to hear the voice of God from the pages of his word as we read this book. We can trust that what God has given is sufficient. As for the structure of Joel, it's a short book. It's got four movements to it around three themes. At least, that's the way that I'm going to break it down. The themes I think are the real juicy stuff, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but let me just give you a a structure because I think that that helps, the, the four movements. We do have that slide. Too bad it's so hard to read. I'm sorry. Part one is a picture of the historical plague of locusts that came upon uh, Jerusalem, Judea at some point and destroyed much of the land. This is chapter one. Look with me at verses one through four. And the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The rest of this chapter has words like lament, be ashamed, fast, and cry out to God. So although this chapter of, of Joel doesn't uh, actually talk about sin, it doesn't accuse the people of God here of any particular sin, it's safe to say that the plague of locusts has come upon the people of God as a sign of judgment. I can make that claim, I think, with confidence Because it's further backed up by where Joel goes from here. This first movement blends into chapter two pretty seamlessly. And in chapter two, we get this phrase, the day of the Lord, which is God's coming judgment upon the land. It's a theme that shows up in a number of the prophets. So in chapter two, we see another plague of locusts, which is described like an invading army. It's real cryptic. Even the first couple of times I read it, I didn't even catch that we were talking about locusts. It sounds like an army. But this is the future judgment that God will bring upon the land. And what we know about judgment is that God's judgment always comes as a result of sin. So although Joel doesn't speak about any particular sin, we know that sin and judgment go hand in hand. So these two plagues of locusts, a literal one and a prophetic figurative one, go hand in hand, one that literally happened during Joel's day, and one that is prophetic in nature and future in reality, pointing to this final day of God's judgment. So the first plague of locusts is really just a sign meant to indicate that something greater, something more important is coming on the day of the Lord in the future. Look at chapter 2 real quick, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. This is poetic language. It uses the word people, but if you continue to read, the people look a lot like locusts and behave a lot like locusts. So this is describing this future judgment of God that's coming in the day of the Lord. Okay, so that's part one, the first movement. Movement two begins in chapter two, verse 12, and goes through verse 17. Read this with me. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation." Assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is poetic language, or I'm sorry. Uh, that's where we were before. Here we have this call to repentance in movement two, And I want you to see just how amazing these verses are. God has spoken about the coming day of the Lord when He will judge the peoples and there will be consequences and destruction because of their idolatry and sin. And now He says, That if the people rend their hearts and they repent and return to the Lord because God is gracious and merciful, he will relent of his disaster and he'll leave behind him in his wake blessing. Think about how stunning that is for a moment. Theologically, the Bible teaches us that God does not change his mind. God is not fickle. He is perfect and constant. He knows everything, and so there's no need to change. He never gets new information that alters the conclusions he's come to. So God cannot change. Because for God to change anything that he thinks or anything that he does would mean that he's not perfect in his nature now already. He cannot become more perfect, so God cannot change. Numbers 23, 19, Says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? But Joel wants us to reflect on something truly wonderful and mysterious and beautiful. Something incredible, something even somewhat incomprehensible to our finite minds as we think about a holy and infinite God. "'Although God will absolutely punish sin "'and judge mankind for idol worship "'and rebellion against Him, "'God will pour out grace and mercy "'and blessing on those who turn to Him "'instead of punishment and wrath and judgment. "'Our God is gracious and loving.'" And because he is gracious and loving, he relents of judgment when people turn to him in repentance. I mean, that's the cross in a summary, isn't it? Judgment, God's relenting of disaster, and leaving a blessing all crammed into one beautiful moment. More on that in a moment when we get to the themes, because it's worth reflecting on in more detail. After this comes movement three in Joel, which... You, If you squint, maybe you can read. It begins in chapter 2, verse 18, and runs through verse 32. Just look at verses 18 and 19 with me. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Skip ahead to verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So God relents from utterly destroying his people, although that's precisely what they deserve. And he points to a future day when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, The apostle Peter hits on this at Pentecost in Acts. And this comes to God's people not because they deserve it, but because God is gracious. And then finally, the fourth and last movement of Joel is chapter 3, when God judges the nations, but he spares those who've turned to him and who now belong to him. Look at chapter 3, and let me read verses 11 through 16. It says, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So Joel informs us That God will judge the nations, but God will also be a refuge for his people. He will spare them from his just judgment against them. Now let's consider the major themes of Joel. There's three I want to focus on, okay? First, Joel gives us a picture of the holiness of God. This is actually a theme that weaves its way through all of the prophets. It's a major theme of the Old Testament in general, that God is holy Moral in all of his actions, good and right and true in everything that he does. He is without blame. He is utterly void of evil. He is full of every perfection and completely committed to the virtues that emanate from his being and his character. God is not true, God is truth. He is love, He is goodness, He is justice. He is wisdom. He is power. He is glory. He is holy. These are not things that describe God. These are things that have their origin in him. They exist because he is. But the theme of God's holiness comes to us in the book of Joel sort of from a side door, okay? If you read it this week, you're like, I don't really see the word holy in there all too much. And you were right. Right? It's presented to us indirectly, and it comes to us through God's judgment in the book of Joel. It's presented indiscreetly, or discreetly, sorry. The book doesn't speak directly about God's holiness. Instead, it speaks about God's judgment for sin, which is the result of God's holiness. Maybe we could even say, Joel assumes that you understand that God has every right to judge the world. And I hope you do assume that, But let me clarify. Uh, see, how often have we heard people say, "You can't judge me." It's often the mantra of our self-obsessed and relativistic culture, isn't it? Uh, someone was joking with me recently, like the John 3:16 of the pagan, right? Do not judge. Well, there's some truth to that point, right? After all, John 8 does say to the men who want to stone the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, well, if you're sinless, go ahead and throw the first stone. And it's the first time the Pharisees show any sort of wisdom because none of them cast the first stone because they recognize they're not sinless. They too are guilty. They too are deserving of public condemnation. Maybe another way to illustrate this is a fight between a husband and a wife. And one of them points out the flaw in the other one. And as often happens, the response is, yeah, but you fill in the blank. And the truth is, the judgment with which we judge others, it will be measured against us. It will be used to judge us because as humans, we are all frail and we all sin in many ways. But think about this. Because God is holy, his judgment is just. He can judge us. He can throw the first stone. There are no flaws in his character or his nature to which we can appeal to invalidate his right to judge us. He wins every argument because nobody can ever turn the argument back against him and say, Yeah, but you... There's nothing to insert in the blank. And in Joel, it's the day of the Lord that is the judgment of God that proves his perfect holiness. Look at chapter 2, verse 11, the very end. Just that last sentence says, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody. Nobody can stand up under the scrutiny and judgment of a God who is utterly holy and perfect. And thank goodness then for what Joel declares in chapter 2 verse 32 look there and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved God has made a way to escape judgment and verse 2 32 doesn't say everyone who is holy shall be saved that's not what it says It doesn't say everyone who is good shall be saved. It doesn't say everyone who is without sin shall be saved. Thank God, because if that were the case, if it were dependent upon us, we would all be utterly screwed in the judgment, right? Joel looks forward to a day when everyone who is saved is saved not by their self-righteousness, but by the grace and mercy of God. Of our God who has compassion. Joel looks forward to a day when the holiness of God relents from judgment and punishment because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so God is holy. And the good news is that his just and holy judgment for sinners is turned aside when we call upon the name of the Lord, when we cry out to him in grace. God relents of his judgment. And if you've never cried out to God for mercy, I plead with you, I pray right now that you will do that. That you'll do it today, that you'll do it here, that you'll do it now. Repent, turn from your sin. Be saved by God's grace. For the second major theme in Joel, we have to go back to chapter two and look at verse 25. And I'm sorry for making you jump all over the place. At least it's not, you know, the whole book of Isaiah. Verse 25 says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Let's ponder that for a moment. What I want you to see here is that the source of this great tragedy among God's people, where did it come from? Oh, I'm sorry, I need to finish the verse. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which i sent among you from where did the destroying cutting army of locusts come god sent them last week we sang a song blessed be your name it's one of my favorite worship songs i know it's kind of an older one but it's so precious to me in that song there's this wonderful lyric that's basically ripped off from the book of joel the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Joel one twenty one. I'm sorry, Joel. Job. I'm sorry, Job one twenty one. And Joel deals with the same theme. God gave the rains that produced the growth of crops that Israel was eating, and God sent the locusts that destroyed the crops and ravaged the land. The point is, God is sovereign. He is in control. The earth is His and everything in it. We are His creatures. The clay that He shapes for His purposes. But far from being a depressing thing that leads us into despair, if we're humble enough to receive this truth that Scripture teaches, it's a wonderful encouragement. Think about this. Because something like the destroying work of the plague of locusts, something like a great darkness over the land or a great tragedy in our lives, if we believe that even these things come to us from the hand of God, then when those things come, they are powerless to shake us because God is greater But if God is not the one who sends the locusts, the destruction and the tragedy that comes in life, if God doesn't send them, then these things happen in spite of God. Consider the consequences of that thought. If the locusts come in spite of God, then what incompetent kind of powerless and worthless God is He? If God didn't send the locusts, then the locusts have more power than God. He didn't want them to come, but they came anyway. And if that is your God, then your God is too small. He's impotent. He's not worth bowing down to. But if God is the one who sends the locusts, and the tragedies and the hardships and the darkness of this world are all under His sovereign control— then all of these things become just little tools in his hands that he uses for our sanctification. Things that are under his divine power that he puts to use for his will and his glory and our good. The point is that if God is sovereign, then literally everything is at his command to do his will for his good purposes. He's in control no matter the circumstances. And look what God does in verse 25 of chapter 2. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Now that phrase is truly astounding. Because the one commodity in life that cannot ever be restored to you is time. Money, possessions, land, all these material things can be regathered if you lose them. But the years that are stolen from us are gone forever. Life taken from us is lost for good. Except, of course, where the sovereign God of time and eternity is concerned. In his case, even life and death are under his control. Even time and eternity dance to do his bidding. And so we see a wonderful picture of God's power in his sovereign control of everything and also a beautiful promise that because God's holiness includes goodness and mercy and love and grace and kindness, for those who love God, even the tragedy and the darkness and the destruction of the locusts become his tools for restoration and sanctification, leading us to awe and wonder and worship at this God who takes these things and weaves them into his perfect plan. Nothing is greater than our God. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I want to teach this to you at every opportunity I have from Scripture. Consistently now, in times of plenty, in times of joy, in times of ease, so that when inevitably the days of darkness come upon you, when the destruction comes, when the sorrow overwhelms, and you wonder, why, God, are you making me suffer so much? So that in those times, your faith is not shaken and your confidence is not destroyed because these truths have rooted deeply in your hearts to give you confidence in God. Because you remember what Scripture teaches in books like Joel, that God gives and God takes away. God sends the locusts to destroy, and He also restores the years that the locusts have stolen. So that in the times of heartache and suffering, you remember God is greater than these things, and God is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God works even our pain and our suffering for His glory. And you, in those times, rather than despair in darkness, you look to the cross and you remember this truth where it's most powerfully and wonderfully displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. Where the tragedy of death in the life of the perfect Son of God, in the darkness of His suffering, you see actually God's hand at work most wonderfully, most gloriously for your salvation, and you remember God is good. God is good. I want to do something crazy. You could all probably use a break right now anyway, so here it comes. I want, to, I want our church to testify to this truth, and here's how I want to do it. I, I want to just hang on until I finish, but I want to ask you to stand. If you have been walking with Jesus long enough, or maybe you just started, but you've already seen the restoring power of God to give back the years the locust stole. The goodness of our sovereign God in your life. If you've seen it through trials and suffering and tragedy, I want you to just stand up. Go ahead and do that for me right now. Man, don't, don't look at me. Seriously, turn and look around the room. Look at all the people standing to testify about the goodness of our God, the saints of God standing to testify. This is true. Our God is sovereignly good. Whatever life brings, He is good. You can go ahead and have a seat, but I hope that you'll let that image just burn in your mind. And with God's sovereign goodness in mind, I want us to just turn to the final theme of Joel. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster the final theme of joel i want to touch on is just simply the grace of god god in his perfect holiness and in his sovereign power as creator and sustainer of all things god owes us nothing we are entitled to nothing before this god And yet, God is so gracious. He loves us so much. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And all that we have to do is return to Him with sincere hearts. That's it. And His compassion will well up within Him like an unstoppable tide. And you understand that even if we return, he's still not obligated to love us and accept us. But he does. He will not turn away a repentant heart. He will not despise a broken person with a contrite spirit. He will not reject the cry for mercy of a sinner. He will not refuse the plea for mercy spoken by those who are truly broken verse 18 of this same chapter tells us that god looks on his people and he pities them when they turn to him and they ask him to spare them when they repent and they seek him he has pity and he responds his holiness and his sovereign goodness compel him to receive home the prodigal son who wandered away. And so I just want to encourage your hearts with this wonderful good news. Our God is gracious. Not because we deserve it, but because He's kind. He will spare us from His righteous judgment because of the saving work of Jesus. He will restore to us the life that has been robbed from us by the destroyer. He will forgive all of our sins. He will have pity on us and not allow us to become a reproach. He will be gracious and merciful for His name's sake so that the nations know that our God is good and kind and true. And of course, all this is proven to us in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the point of Joel. It's the point of all of Scripture, to drive us to Jesus. Joel points forward to a time when the destroyer is destroyed, when the nations are judged, when sin is defeated and our God is a refuge. And it's true, we wait for the fullness of that day. The day of the Lord is coming. But even while we wait because of what Christ Jesus has done, we already have the victory, my friends. God has already become our refuge. God has already poured out His mercy. God has already restored to us what the serpent stole in the garden, fellowship with God. And so to give you an application from Joel, sorry, let me just sum it up like this, and this is where I'll end. While we wait for that full and final day of the Lord, which is coming swiftly and which will come like a thief in the night, let us live lives that honor God holy lives, walking boldly in this grace that he has given us freely. Let us live in the spirit which Joel talks about in chapter 2, 28, the spirit which God has poured out liberally among his people, that we might be called his beloved children. Let us honor God with our lives. God, the holy one, the blessed one who takes away, but who also gives generously. Let it be said of us that we were faithful, that we trusted in the sovereign goodness of God, that we stood firm to the end, that we rested in the power and grace of our God, our refuge. Let me pray. God, these are things that only you can accomplish. In this life, we will have trouble, but We're told to take heart because you've overcome the world. And so, Lord, be our refuge. God, remind us of your sovereign goodness. God, teach us more about your grace. God, allow us to respond to your holiness through the power of your Spirit by being holy like you are holy. And God, I I thank you for this picture that I have in my mind of all these people standing to testify to your sovereign goodness in their lives, in the midst of trials and suffering and heartache and darkness and sorrow. Lord, let us remember that image in times of trial. And let us go to you with confidence, remembering that you are good. Amen.